Hey everyone, I'm your host, Stanley Genetic, and welcome to the Landscape Disruptors podcast. Landscape Disruptors is a platform that showcases top performers in the landscape and snow industry and discusses all things related to business and beyond. This is a platform for sharing advice that relates to helping landscapers build successful and well-planned out businesses of their own. Viewers can expect a variety of guest experts to talk about all functions related to business, including sales, marketing, making better equipment decisions, and a variety of other topics that will help you be a more efficient and more profitable landscape company. You can learn more about our free content at landscapedisruptors.com. Before I intro our guest today, I wanna to give a big shout out to LMN Software. They're the ones that are making this happen. I've personally been using their software in my own company for the last year, and it's a complete game changer for my business. LMN is the most comprehensive landscape business management software in the industry. From budgeting, estimating, customer relationship management, time tracking, and so much more. It's the true do-it-all tool for your landscape business and provides a platform to scale your company to the next level. And the best part about LMN is they have a free version which you can begin using today. Just visit golmn.com backslash disruptors to learn more and start taking advantage of the software that's helped me grow my business into a successful, sustainable, and profitable company. That's golmn.com backslash disruptors. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, you guys. We are back with a little bit of a different show for you today. We are actually going to be answering some of the questions that you guys have been sending in through the internet, and I'm always available to do this. So if you guys have questions, send them in, and I will be putting together another show where we do the same thing. But without wasting any more time, let's get into question number one. Oh, well, you know what? Before we do that, I should probably introduce who I am. My name is Stan the Genetic. I'm the Dirt Monkey, and I've been a contractor over 30 years. Damn, that ages me, doesn't it? So this is what I've done pretty much and all I've done my whole life and I do it as well as I can do it and I share everything that I've learned along the way with you guys to help you guys refine what you're doing. Now, there is always more than one way to skin a cat, my dad told me, and I've learned that what I necessarily do may work for me. It may not be perfect for you, but if it helps plant seeds and ideas inside of your guys' heads and help you refine your processes, that's all we're aiming for today. So question number one, this is a question that comes in a lot. I wanna start a landscape company. Should I start with property maintenance, lawn maintenance, or should I go right into hardscaping? So let's check this off the books. Press this one. What do you like? That's the big question. If your heart and soul is into hardscaping, you need to understand that there is a much bigger learning curve to do a hardscaping company than there is a property maintenance company. And I know all of a sudden I'm going to be I just pissed off about five guys that do property maintenance. Saying, Whoa, what the heck is he talking about? What I'm actually talking about with a hardscaping company is retaining wall construction, paver installation, boulder retaining walls, any anything that goes along the lines with actual construction and not just maintenance. So they're actually kind of different breeds. And when I talk about property maintenance, what I'm talking about is turf establishment, um, you know, making tall grass short aeration, fertilization, overseeding, uh, spring and fall cleanups, the whole nine yards. Although they fall into the same genre of the green industry, they're at kind of different ends of the spectrum. Um, and so 
really, you have to take, you have to be self-aware of who you are. And if you're just getting started, you have to understand which path do I want to grow down. Go down. Both paths can, divulge, can, can merge and come together at some point, but they do take different skill sets. So you have to, the thing that they do have in common is you have to be able to understand how to run the business end of it. Now let's talk about really what it takes to run a business. There is the actual physical business end of it, which is all of the, the systems that you need to put in place, everything to operate your business. And that is the most important aspect of what you're going to be doing for profits. Okay, and it's very important that you dial in your business systems before you even decide whether you're going to do property maintenance or hardscaping, because once you get those systems in place, it's going to help you monitor where your profits go. Right. And let's talk about just one of the basic differences between the hardscaping, the skill sets required, the tools and equipment required to get into either industry. If you're going into property maintenance. Your, skill, your equipment that you buy for property maintenance may not necessarily just allow you to go into hardscaping. Mowers and trimmers and aerators and you know chemical application equipment really doesn't work very effectively on a hardscaping job where you need skid steers, pallet forks, you need mini loaders, you, you, need, you may need an excavator. And it's also a completely different mindset for for the labor intensity of each one. Now, each one of these two categories, you're going to be outside working in the sun all day long. So you better have a really wide brimmed hat and be and look good with a suntan. Either way, you're going to be cooking out in the sun. They have that in common, but property maintenance requires a completely different skill set as far as understanding the turf you need to do you need to start to look at how you manage the turf because you're going to be get you're going to be asked questions very specific to that industry people are going to be coming to you with what's the best plants what's the best chemicals to be applied at what time of the year when you're in property maintenance and the more the deeper your understanding is of that industry the more opportunities that you are going to be able to create on your own now, if we go over and flip over to the hardscape end of it, you may be asked, what's the best retaining wall blocks? How do you backfill the retaining wall? How do you build walls over four feet tall? What's the engineering re required to build a retaining wall over four feet tall? Should I use a polymeric sand on the overlay of my pavers? And so all of these are questions that you can see are very specific to a hardscaping industry or very specific to a property maintenance industry. And you guys need to take a personal assessment of where does your strength lie? Remember now, we're going to just let's sum this up. You have to understand how to run your business. Your business is completely separate. You're, when you understand how to run a business, that's like the Rubik's Cube. When you know how to run a business, you can do, you can use that skill of running a business to run any kind of a business. But as contractors, we have to have a second set of completely separate skills, and that's the technical know-how that goes along with whichever industry we decide to go into. Got it? Okay. Question number two. I am moving into a new place with a hill made of sand. What are the major concerns with building a retaining wall with this type of soil? By Chris. 
Oh, that's a I love technical questions like that. Chris, sand is a beautiful material to work with as long as you're done working with it. What I mean is it's never ending. When you get into a sand hill, you're going to dig into it and you're going to excavate and you're going to set that bucket of sand to the side when you go to build your retaining wall. And when you turn back to look back around, it's not going to look like you did anything. And you're going to dig that bucket up and you're going to go, ah, what the heck is going on here? And you're going to move that over to here and you're going to turn back around. And you're going to go, wait a minute. What's going on? What happens is sand moves. Sand has, if it's sugar sand, powder sand, it has no binding agent, so it tends to move and shift. It's not a bad material by any point, any reason whatsoever, but it also is a very difficult material during the construction process. A beautiful material when you're done with it because it's so solid. And even though sand will tend to move and shift as the water goes through, it allows the water to free flow right through. So you're not going to have hydrostatic buildup and condensation in the soil where the soil grabs onto that water, grips it tight, and then starts to expand like a clay soil would do. And especially if it freezes and thaws, sand doesn't typically uh, have the same issues that a clay soil would have. Now, when you build these taller retaining walls, you still have, to, it's nothing changes as far as the engineering. You still have to understand the basic components of engineering. And you have to understand there's basically three things. Is it flat level slope when you're engineering your retaining wall? Or is there a hill on top of the retaining wall, which creates a surcharge, extra load, extra weight onto the retaining wall? So flat level, a hill, and this extra soil actually impacts this retaining wall and what you do with the geogrid behind it, or a building or a parking lot, a structure. And a structure also puts a surcharge onto a retaining wall. Those are the three big factors. And then you have to take soil stratification into consideration when you're trying to determine how much geogrid placement, how many layers of geogrid, how far behind the retaining wall the geogrid goes. And sand typically is a little bit more forgiving, actually, than a lot of the other types of soils that you may encounter. It's just one of the more difficult materials to work with during the construction process. So there you go. Now we have another question. Let me just scroll up here. Mr. Genetic, what is your advice on having 12-inch diameter footers, 8 foot on center, co-located in the same footprint area as the backfill and geogrid of my retaining wall? I am installing a 4-foot high wall by 21 feet with Allen Block stones. Allen Block retaining walls. They're 75 pounds each and using 3-quarter inch angular gravel. We wish to extend our deck porch and it will run parallel to the wall that we are building. Thank you for the excellent tutorials on YouTube. We save money and future catastrophe by listening to your best practices. God bless you. Respectfully, Jeff. Okay, so let me paint this picture for you guys. Jeff is going to be building a retaining wall. This is the soil behind it. On top of it, I believe Jeff wants to place a deck. He's got to support that deck. And this goes beautifully with what we just talked with, talked about with the, the structure. So this deck will place a surcharge onto this retaining wall. And what he wants to know is how do you compensate for that? 
Okay. The first thing that I'm going to recommend every single person do is hire an engineer, a civil engineer that's familiar with retaining walls before you tackle any project. So don't just use what I'm saying in this podcast, this video as gospel and go forward and start to build it that way. Make sure that you get individual consultation on your project before you go diving right in and tackling it. But here's what I would say to you, Jeff. You can safely build that deck if you put sauna tube footings or whatever kind of footings you want inside of that geogrid zone and you actually build that in as you're building the retaining wall. It's okay to actually put the footings inside of the retaining wall, the geogrid zone, as you're building it. And as you're building it is the key word I'm saying over and over again. So if you have a retaining wall that's done and you just want to go plop a deck on top of it, that's a no-no because the wall has to be engineered to handle the surcharge of the deck footings. And if the wall is already done and you decide after the fact that you want to put a retaining wall on it and you're going to put your sauna tube footings in and you're going to auger down, what could happen is as you're augering down to put your sauna tube footings in, you can, and I've seen this, you can grab that geogrid underground and twist it right up and make it completely ineffective. You've basically just eliminated the support structure of the retaining wall and, and instead you know, trying to create a support structure for your deck. But if your retaining wall falls down, more than likely your deck is going to fall down. You can actually find different systems. I know Versalock has one, and you can use the Versalock footing system on any retaining wall. So it's not designed just for Versalock. The only reason I say their name is because I'm familiar, the most familiar with them. Allen Block probably has something system something similar and what it is is actually a sauna tube that actually has a platform on it so you get a sauna tube going up like this and it has an l-shaped footing platform and you bury this behind with soil and that helps stabilize the sauna tube from tipping right and so if your wall is here your sauna tube if it's just a straight sauna tube like this and it gets any lateral pressure it can tip and then that can impact the retaining wall but when it has this buried footing, it's less likely to tip, okay? And you can also put in a straight footing down below, uh, right in your backfill zone, but you gotta have a good retaining wall contractor that understands compaction and knows that you're actually placing a footing on a compaction zone. You can never place it in the drainage zone, but you can put it on the compaction zone as long as you're hitting a I would say I would recommend 100% standard proctor, but I think 97 or 98 is really typical for a situation like that. Again, don't quote me on this, but a standard proctor density is basically what tells you how well compacted your soil is. 95 is great for green zones. When we were doing commercial construction, we were always striving for, I think, 97 or 98. I don't remember what the exact number was, and we would always hit over 100 uh, because, you know, heck, if you screw that up, you can screw up an entire building. So you're always like over nervous how you're going to do this. Um, so that's how you can actually place footings on that as long as you're doing it while you're building it, as long as you're building the retaining wall to take the extra surcharge that the deck will place on it, um, you'll be in good shape with that one. So let's see what else we have for questions. Oh, 
Here's a great one. What should I consider when looking for a new dump trailer? <laughs> Holy buckets. This is a wide open question, you guys. 26,001 in the United States. That is the cutoff where you will start to need a CDL. Don't quote me on this because when you hear this, where you are located, all of these things may change. So you guys need to check your specs. But at least where we are, if a truck and a trailer weighs over 26,000 pounds, you have to have a CDL, a commercial driver's license to be able to handle that rig. So the first thing you need to understand is, if I buy this dump trailer, can I legally even pull it off from the lot? That's a big consideration. The other thing that you should be looking at is, what am I going to be using the dump trailer for? Am I going to be hauling a lot of light bulk materials? And if you're gonna be handling a lot of light bulk materials, a dump trailer with higher sides may be right for you, okay? If you're hauling mulch, like wood chips, mulch, you're doing spring and fall cleanups with it, if you're handling lighter materials, the reason you might want lighter sides is because you can put more bulk material in. The drawback to having higher sides is that it increases the weight of the trailer, which decreases the weight of your payload. So the heavier your trailer weighs, the less you can carry. And so some guys will be going, well, why don't I just get lower sides? Well, because it's no fun when you're driving down the road and your bulk material is blowing out onto the road and you get them white and red lights flashing behind you, that's not a fun time either. So you have to be very careful about what kind of trailer you're going to get, match it up to what you're doing. Now, the thing that you need to do understand is not all trailers are made the same and you typically will get what you pay for right? But you can't see that. I've learned through the process, you can't see how well a paint job is done. You can't see it. You don't know. You can't, you can see how well though the welds are done. So you need to look for the little areas where you can see somebody could have done a better job, but maybe they didn't. And that needs to be an indicator of maybe the rest of these things. If there's a red, obvious red flag here, did they do something cheap out somewhere over here? These are all very important things to take into consideration as you guys are trying to figure out which is your best trailer to buy. So it's a it's a very wide open category. Um, I just I can't I'm not I'm not going to recommend one brand over another because I only have experience with a few brands, and that's not going to say that the experience I have with those few brands should be this experience that everybody has with every brand out there. I can tell you that I've had great experience with the ones that I've had. SureTrack, Texas Pride, and Diamond Sea all have been really top quality companies. They've educated me a lot on the things to look for. And uh, Diamond Sea educated me on look for the paint because sometimes they actually just paint raw metal, put paint right on raw metal and it looks good for a year or two but in the northern climates it doesn't hold up i also learned that during the process look for those welds look for the little the attention to the little details when i was interviewing the sure track guys they they showed me how 
welds can be boogered. And a boogered weld is just an indicator of quality overall. So those are a few of the things to look for while you're doing it. And then uh, just you know, go from there. Buy the trailer that's right for you. Question number four came in. Is investing in snow re removal equipment worth it despite climbing insurance costs? Hmm. Okay. Is snow removal equipment worth it despite climbing insurance costs? So I take this question as it does cost more for you to run a snowplow company and you can't, you, you've got to disclose that you're snowplowing because if you are caught in an accident while you're snowplowing, that is one of those questions that can and will come up and you may not have coverage if you don't have the right insurance for the right kind of work. They can, they don't necessarily have to just blanket cover you. So you've got to make sure that you have the proper coverage before you do that work, but that coverage is going to cost you more. And is the cost of that coverage going to outweigh the amount that you, the amount of revenue that it's going to bring in over the course of the year? That's a question that you have to answer. I don't know where you're located. If you are located in the lake area of Michigan, well, guess what? And you're plowing 100 inches of snow on average per year. Most of your business may come in from snow plowing and snow removal, but if you're down in South Ohio and you're lucky to get one or two events per year, is it worth it? If you have one, uh, one gas station to snow plow, is it worth putting on a snow plow even on your truck? Is it worth going through all of the hassle to do it the right way, the legal way, to maybe plow once or twice to earn that hundred and some dollar bill? It's not how many years are you going to have to plow, pay off your snowplow to do that? These are things that you actually need to take into consideration before you go and invest in snowplow equipment. Now, the way that I invest in my snowplow equipment is a long time ago, I made a commitment that we were a snow plowing company that worked year round. And basically what that means, I'm air quoting, is because even in Minnesota, snow plowing is the lesser of the two seasons, typically. A good snow plow season will go, uh, may start at the end of November. So you can't count November, and I say May. You'll have one event in November in my neck of the woods. So you've got December, January, February, and they say March is the snowiest month, but it's that's never been proven by any means. So you're really not getting that many months out of the year. So if we count, if I count revenue that I can generate in four months, and I can pay for that snow plowing and snow removal equipment in four months, but then I can work it another eight months out of the year. I can work it the rest of the year somehow. Well, then guess what? I've paid for my equipment in the off season, and now I can start to profit from my equipment during the busier part of the season. And so I take into consideration skid loaders. For me, we do hardscaping. A skid loader is a no-brainer. Do I need to, another skid loader? Yeah. Can I add another snow plowing account if I get another skid loader? Can I pay for that entire skid loader, the cost of that skid loader for the year in the four months that I'm just plowing snow? And if I can answer yes to those questions, then I can afford to have a skid loader sit and do nothing the rest of the year. My sledge, some of you guys may be familiar with that. That's my cheap Chinesium loader, right? 
So I bought a, a payloader, a S S D L G. We just call it the sledge. It was $64,000 brand new in the box. And I don't use it for anything but snow plowing. That's it. That's the, oh, it sits the other rest of the year. And I use it typically only for snow plowing and nothing else. And that's how dedicated I am to making my equipment purchases pay for itself in the off season so that if I don't want to work it during the on season, I don't have to. But if I can work it during the on season, that's just extra feathers in my cap. That's how I work that. Okay. Next question. I am going to be starting a lawn and landscape business where I plan on offering things such as aeration, overseeding, fertilizing, and also mulching, hedge trimming, and some tree work along with pressure washing. Okay. What is the best way, in your opinion, to try and secure a contract with the owner of a property that could be easily priced at over $750,000? It's a big contract. Also, what do you think the best sales type pitch for something like that would be? Signed, Nick. Okay, now I'm going to ask each and every single one of you guys, if you were going to go out and buy a $750,000 truck, what would you look for? Right? This is what this company is looking for. You would, you would look for a partner. You would look for, if somebody said, here's your $750,000 truck, it's got all these cool options, it does all this, here it is, hand over the keys, walk away, and then now you're left on your own, or you had somebody else come in and say, here's your $750,000 truck with all the bells, whistles, and options that the other truck has, but now I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to prove this. I'm going to meet with you face-to-face -face anytime you need me to. I'm going to answer your questions. I'm going to be out to your site. I've already walked your site. I've already identified this list of seven problems, potential problems on your site. I've listed uh, seven potential solutions to the problems that are on your site. I've also identified some issues that maybe could come up in three to five years. What? And I've also shown you ways that we, if we do some preventive maintenance, we can take those potential issues and keep them from ever happening. Basically, all I'm doing is I'm doing the same thing. One contractor turns over a proposal and says, hey, here's our best price. Another contractor turns over a proposal and says, here's our best price, and you get me. You get my service. Nick, you, you are the best sales pitch you have. You, my friend, look in the mirror. The words you speak, the way you present it, how comfortable you make that person that is willing to sign a $750,000 contract about how dedicated you are to them is the most important thing you could ever do. And sometimes that means going to lunch with the people. I'm not joking. Phone calls, stopping by, if they're okay with you stopping by and going over issues. Being proactive and not reactive. These are all the keys that are going to land you that contract over the next guy that just starts putting out proposal after proposal after proposal. He's fishing. He's seeing which fish bites. You, my friend, are fishing with a net. He's fishing with a lure. You have a bigger chance of landing that contract because of who you are. You are the best sales pitch that you can have. All right. Ooh. I don't know if I even want to ask, answer this next question. What's the biggest 
uh, problem landscape contractors face and why? I think it's the hiring shortage. I think um, finding good help. And I think when you find good help, you have to let them know they are good help. You have to treat them so well that they don't want to look anymore. Okay. And good help will have people knocking on their door, pursuing them because they hear about them. They see what they can do. They'll have, they'll, you'll have other companies trying to recruit your guys off from your job site. You will, you will. The hiring shortage is one of the biggest problems we face inside of this industry. And what you've got to do is, is maybe you have to find someone that doesn't have the skills you have, but has the character that you would like to see on your team. I don't think skills are necessarily as important as work ethic and the content of a man's heart. His character is just, is he willing to, if he screws up instead of covering it up, is he's willing to confess it and fix it? And even if he screws up more than what you like, if he's willing to go the extra step and he's trying to make it right, eventually this guy is going to learn. And if you are treating him so well that it doesn't matter what else he's doing or you know what else anybody else is doing out there, all he wants to do is be with you, I think that's the most important thing that you can do to find good help and to keep good help. And your help is going to recruit. If you have good help and you ask them, hey, can you go out and help me find, we need somebody for you, we need your secondhand man. Do you have any recommendations? A lot of times they may say no, but every time, but once in a while, you may find them to say yes. And we've been lucky this year. Our guys have hired their own guys. We didn't find them. They found their own guys, hired them, trained them, and taught them the ways that we work. And that starts from, the top down, that starts from how you interact with your employees. It starts from how you treat the people, how you value those people, how they feel that you treat them, how they feel. No one will, they will never remember what you say. They won't even remember what you do, but people will remember the way that you make them feel, Maya Angelou. And the way you make your crew feels I think is one of the most important things you can do for your recruitment efforts. I know, corny. You're like, where's the harp playing in the background, dirt monkey? No, I'm serious. I think that's pretty important. Okay. This one came in and it says, I enjoy watching your snow removal videos and I wanted to find out why you have never, why, and I wanted to find out you'd never have any videos on pre-salting or salting after you have your properties cleared? Tim, beautiful question. We don't, we do salt, we don't salt a lot, and that's a very conscious decision that I don't wanna work that much. And you're gonna go, wait, wait, dirt monkey's lazy? No, not at all. There is, in Minnesota, there's a lot of snow plowing events. And so you take all of these snow plowing events, which is about 21 to 25 per season, okay? So for a whole season, we figure we'll be going out 21 to 25 times. Now, for salting, you double that. So now you go out snow plowing 21 to 25 times, let's say 25 times, and you have to go out 
assaulting 50 times. And we already work our butts hard year round. The winter is kind of like, ah, we're okay going a little bit slower. We are okay. The Dirt Monkey crew is okay going just a little bit slower. And so we're not going to go out and go, all right, well, we can salt all of our accounts. We don't want the extra work, plain and simple. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's formulas out there for understanding how much salt to do, how much to charge on your salting runs, all of those things. In fact, I've done videos on how to do the calculations for those things. It's just a personal choice that we make. Now, we do have some accounts that we have to salt simply because we are the one and you're done. We're the one stop to them. But we have other accounts that we can opt out of the salting contract. And a second bonus to that is once you opt out of the salting contract, you can also put in, you can clarify in your contract that you're not responsible for slip and falls. This is a beautiful thing. It's kind of a protective, an extra protective barrier because slip and falls happen. Slip and fall lawsuits can happen. And the more barriers and hurdles you have between yourself and a slip and fall lawsuit, the better. And so if you are the one-stop shop, there is no barrier. You are completely responsible. But if you are the subcontractor, so you have a contractor and you are a subcontractor, and then you have another subcontractor which do, is doing the salting, which we have about you know a big share of our our, our uh, contracts are we are actually a, nothing more than a subcontractor. It's easy being a subcontractor. Beautiful. It's easy. It's almost like somebody else becomes your boss. You're still responsible, but I I just I just love being able to work with somebody and share that responsibility. So if a slip and fall comes in as a subcontractor, the first person they contact is the contractor. Then the contractor has to decide, well, did the snow plowing guy screw up or did the guy doing the salting and de-icing miss a spot? Well, come on. I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes. So um, those are a few of the things that uh, I have addressed. And let's see, I think, I think that brings us to the end of this one. So here we are, you guys. I hope you enjoyed this one. And if you want to ask your questions, just send me an email at hello at landscapedisruptors.com. I'm going to say that one more time. Hello, like hi, but it's H-E-L-L-O, at landscapedisruptors.com. And then the next time we do one of these, we'll try to include your questions in them. That's all I got for you today. God bless you guys. Go get them. All right. Thanks guys for tuning in today and make sure you come back next week. We've got more expert landscape business advice coming down the pipeline. Once again, a huge shout out to LMN Software for sponsoring this podcast and making this all happen. LMN is the most comprehensive landscape business management software in the industry. It's the true do-it-all tool for your landscape business and provides a platform to scale your company to the next level. And the best part about LMN is they have a free version which you can begin using today. Just visit golmn.com backslash disruptors. You guys can start taking advantage of the software that I've been using to help me create a successful, sustainable, and profitable company. That's golmn.com backslash disruptors. Thanks again, everyone, and see you next week.